Good morning, children of God. My name is Kathy Glover Griever, and I am a deacon in training. Stress the in training, please. Um, and I am just really feeling very honored and um, lucky that I get to be with you here today in person, and that I know there are many of you at home, and I hope that we serve you as well. Thank you again. I really want to say, um, start off with a happy Father's Day message to all of you that are fathers. Those of you that are fathers, um, by actually having a child, and those of you that are fathers, because you embody that fatherness, and you guide and direct and serve other younger people. Thank you. So let's just jump right into this, because um, Mark, in his infinite wisdom, gave me... Leviticus 11 and 19, although it's one of the most vague, convoluted scriptures at all, and we all know I have talkitis, and he also gave me a 12-minute time limit. So um, we're going to do the best we can, okay? But hold on, fasten the seatbelt, here we go. All right. Today, the, yes, with all, this entire series, the um, deacons in training were instructed that we needed to speak about context. Um, context being the circumstances that form the setting for the event, uh, the statement or idea, and to do it in a way that it can be fully understood and assessed. So especially, as I said, in Leviticus 11 and 19, it's really essential and my screen just died. Uh, it's really essential that we, we kind of nail this down and we get a sense of what's going on because there's a lot of pieces in here that when you just read it, really don't seem to go make a lot of sense. But um, the main thing to start out with is recognize that the context of Leviticus, all of Leviticus, is both about God's holiness and the holiness he expects from his people. There are fine main contextual themes that run throughout all of the book, and they deal with holiness is required, purity is required, man is unholy, man is impure, therefore laws are required. That's kind of a no-brainer for all of us even today. The overall message of Leviticus is sanctification. Receiving God's forgiveness and acceptance should be followed by the holy living and spiritual growth. Living holy must include the spiritual growth. We, might never, we should never become complacent in our holy living. We must always look for and develop and teach ourselves new areas to mature and grow into. The text of chapter 11 communicates ceremonial or ritual laws. Um, ritual laws always, to me, just sound like, do it because I said so. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of looking at ceremonial being a law to define the rudimentary process to seek God's forgiveness and acceptance. And laws, these laws must be completed in strict sequence according to Leviticus 11. In chapter 19, thought and motivations are brought in to fuel and govern the moral law, which is expressed outwardly in a flowing delivery. Holy living and spiritual growth become your holiness. 
So while ceremonial laws are very restrictive and defined and set for us, our moral law is more of our attitude and our internalization of trying and striving to be holy. It does um, shine very clearly to me that I seem to consistently find a way to move into attitude and its value and our holiness. I hope that doesn't mean I personally have that issue that I have not yet addressed, but if so, I'm willing to work on it. There are some time identifiers also in the context that are going to help us aid uh, the understanding of the scriptural message. Let's look at Leviticus in the whole book and remember that Leviticus is picked up where Exodus has left off. The children of Israel are on their way through the wilderness, and now that Israel has been redeemed by God, they are to be purified people of God, worthy of God. It's the third book in the Torah, or the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of our Bible in the Old Testament. It is now held by scholars to be the compilation from texts of the 9th and 5th centuries BC. All writings are attributed to Moses. Those five books combined the shared story of Israel's origin. The next piece is that God scattered the families into the world, into nations, with their own languages at the power of Babel. A few generations later, then God chooses Abraham as the patriarch for his special nation and anoints him, he and Moses, with responsibilities. He speaks to them directly. In Exodus, Abraham's descendants have multiplied. They've been cohabitating with the Egyptians, but they've also been sold into slavery by Pharaoh. After a dramatic exit from, Exodus, from Egypt, God makes a special agreement with the Israelites, making them his people and himself their only God. God tells Moses, go build a tabernacle. And again, in a ceremonial, ritualistic way, he gives precise details that replicate his heavenly temple. Now, this is the coolest part. When the temple is prepared, the creator of the world begins dwelling among his people. This rich history that leads up to these two chapters in Leviticus are so rich and so important to us because these books, previous to Leviticus and Leviticus included, are what tells us and reminds us that the world is a new normal. It is the second birth of the world. In Leviticus 11, everything is either clean or unclean. Clean things are always good. Unclean things aren't always bad. This is the main characteristic of ritual law that we're going to learn about in chapter 11. And I have a heavy finger this morning. I apologize. Sometimes um, when you start reading, um, yeah, let me get to my notes. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, as I said, chapter 11 uh, gives us a very clear context of what is clean, and, re and it's referred to being what is acceptable or following the rule of God. 
thereby being acceptable and pleasing or holy. Keeping these customs would give the Jewish people a really unique um, identity. It allows them to be separated from being non-Jews, and they would be living, even if they're living among people in Babylon. Some scholars interpret the context shows that someone from the priestly class probably encouraged the Jewish people living in exile to take up some of these laws and orders so that they too might keep the community together, giving them the self-perception that they are all priests and then the new temple of the world. But what is it about those 45 verses in Leviticus 11? And if you haven't read that lately, it's where he goes through and he tells you what is clean, what isn't clean, what you can eat, what you can't eat, how to set up a sacrifice, how to spray the blood and the mud, who can eat what, what animals are accepted. Those 45 verses list living things they may and may not eat specifically to the, Levitic, the, the Jewish people in Leviticus, the text. What is and how was the specified distinction between clean and unclean foods? Well, in just reading 11, you're not going to get the answer. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but a lot of people have surmised that maybe the clean and unclean wasn't told to us because we really don't need to know. We really need to follow and obey. Then there are others who, um, interestingly, are leaders in the scholarly world of theology who have come up the idea that this narrative is how God made the decision would be that it's symbolic. These items are symbolic. So when you read the scripture, if you are still scratching your head about why all this stuff, and is he just being, you know, one of those dads that say, do as I say, um, we can surmise that the unclean animals also were not acceptable as sacrificial offerings. The beast that chew their cud is symbolic of an animal who has a second stomach, so they, re, they chew their food the first time, and then it regurgitates back up, and they chew it again. And many scholars believe that that's symbolic for those of us who um, speak unfairly and have to rework our words. We have to, quote-unquote, eat our words um, so that our, our second time, and it comes through, it can be nourishment. Birds of prey are abolished because potentially they're the ones that attack other birds without provocation, like an untrusty merchant would be. Food, of waters without, food from waters without fins are bottom feeders. They devour the feces that other animals have left behind or run off from the land. I do think it's interesting that there's also people who believe the reason the uh, food of waters without fins was not accepted was because they're already at the lowest level and that they are not looking up to see God's heavens to take breath or to reach towards him. All of these symbols 
come to us as uncleanliness, but they also tell us that things of uncleanliness come in all shapes, sizes, and places. And therefore, uncleanliness lies all about us every single day. We must never not be diligent to allow unclean, uncleanliness to nourish us. Israel has been separated from the nation simply by God choosing them. The Israelites were God's chosen people, clean. They were set aside from any other nation. But one thing is for certain. In the case of the Israelites, as for us today, God was more interested in wanting them to strive for holiness and godliness. He had given them rules and expectations and boundaries because he really wanted them to work towards that. He wanted them to put mind, body, soul, and time into being godly. Because being godly means having an identity based on God's nature. The key here is understanding the cultural context is to teach us to obey as well. God's restricted the Israelites and restricted his disciples today because without, it's, a, it's a deeper meaning than just obeying. Because it means without restrictions that guide us away from ungodly or unholy behavior, we would not know what to do. We would be like those fish out of the water, flipping around on shore. We wouldn't have identity or belonging. And all of us know from Maslow, studying Maslow back in high school, is that identity and belonging gives us a sense of security. It gives us a firm foundation to stand on. It allows us to trust ourselves and others. It allows us to form our personal and spiritual identity through actions because it becomes a reward of guidance. And those who would keep away from sin must be very careful to avoid the temptation to it by by even coming near it. It's kind of like me with the bag of M&Ms. I never really crave M&Ms and M&Ms, I should say, a lot of them, until I'm going through the grocery store line and there's that enticing little brown bag. And it's just staring at me, you know? It just wants to leap over here onto the conveyor belt. Yeah, you're laughing because you've done it too, haven't you? Yeah. Um, So we really have to stay away from that. I mean, literally, there are times I am so weak, I must turn my side to the candy counter. Can you imagine how weak I am when it comes to being accepted by other people that I would do? Would I take that drink? Would I smoke that cigarette? Would I speed a lot faster than I should? I have and I do. God has always wanted his people to have a unique identity separate from the rest of the world. Just as loving fathers today put boundaries on their kids to enforce restrictions on their children, it's not as a punishment. It's a safety precaution. It's a sense of love and guidance. Let's chip in, skip into chapter 19 because it has a lot of fun pieces in it also. And the context of chapter 19 moves from ritualistic or ceremonial law to moral law or internalizing your holiness. 
It's defined by criteria of right actions conceived by an ordained divine ordinance. It deals with our everyday life. The institution of the family, agricultural practices, social behaviors, the question of paying wages, ensuring correct weights and measures in the, in the marketplace, etc. God is revealed in the relationships among mankind. Between one another, we display God. This is hefty. When you're ugly and nasty to someone because you don't have the patience with them, but you're wearing your cross, you are doing the same as taking the Lord's name in vain. Wearing a cross for me has frequently felt like a simple act. I get up in the morning and choose which one, and I throw it around my neck. You know, after doing this, um, I'm going to have a new ritual. I won't be snapping that around my neck until I pray for God to use that to burn a hole into my heart and my brain, and especially my mouth, that I may wear that cross in his honor, that I may display him through my actions to others. Holiness and behavior and attitude was defined in a great detail to be devised and calculated observance that ultimately promotes our well-being and the well-being of all that we interact with. My holiness impacts Mark's holiness. I dare not be the obstacle that leads him astray. And let us never ever forget all of this, the ground rules, the, the laws that were put out, especially in 19, is to prove every piece that we do is to be an expression of love. Just as the rules in 11 were set out as an expression of love from God. Furthermore, Leviticus 19 is important for Christians because of the prominence in its teaching within the New Testament. Now, we always think about Old Testament, New Testament. But, I mean, we're naive if we think they aren't woven together and there are strands that pull from one into the other set of books. But in the New Testament, Christ and his apostles make a great deal of the two commandments which are given in Leviticus 19. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, am your God, am holy. That's Leviticus 19.2. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18. I mean, it's not a coincidence. It's these two strongest messages from God about how we love and how we love in public, in a group, are the keystones leading into the next chapter, into the New Testament. Leviticus defines in greater detail than any other book of the Old Testament the directives that we are used to discover our God. It enforces the desperate need for the practice of holiness, and we learn how sin devastates humanity's relationship with God. If you are his child, then he wants you to reflect his character. The law's true purity must be actively engaged and chosen, not just casually sought after.
God needs his people to have an internalized understanding and desire for unity. God's people must display purity in all things, choosing to be aligned with God because he, he has chosen them. Now they are choosing him. Perpetual consciousness of God becomes the source of holy and happy living. I think that one little phrase just sums it up and says it so clearly for us. How can we miss that? Perpetual consciousness of God becomes the source of holy and happy living. I do apologize. I don't like touch screens a whole lot, especially today. <laughs> It is striking that Leviticus 19 seems to have been intended as preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. The call for holiness resounds throughout the Old and the New Testaments, as we just spoke of, two very specific scenarios. It shows us God's desire to restore all people to living and thriving in him in peace. Ultimately, Every detail brings us to the healing work of Jesus Christ. He is who opened the way back to God permanently for every single one of us. It's no longer a chosen few. It is a chosen many. It is a chosen all. The Bible story also is a progressive one unfolding through the lives of Noah, Abraham, Moses, the nation of Israel, and culminates with the arrival of Jesus, and I dare say, it culminates with the arrival of Jesus through us. Wouldn't it be amazing and wonderful if someday there's a chapter added where God and Christ speak and all of it is fulfilled and the people are raised? That's part of Revelations, I know. But wouldn't it be set cool if it were said tomorrow about you and I? The Bible story is progressive. We can never forget that. We can never stop owning that. We are going to be responsible for bringing some of that progression, procession to fulfillness. Not only Jewish people, but all people from every tribe and every nation, you and I. Jesus came to fulfill God's promise for you and I. Let us rejoice. Let us celebrate. Let us go forth and sing that praise to all in everything we do. Amen.